because we believe the word of God is the only true transforming power for the human soul. That God's word makes all the difference in the human soul and in the life of every human soul. Whether you believe or you don't believe, the fact that you are here or somehow in the presence of hearing this word today, well, listen, we believe and we know as Christians that God's word will accomplish his purpose. And that it is by God's word that we become all that God has created us to become. So we, we walk together, we preach and teach the truth of God's word because, well, it's God's word who transforms. It's God's word who saves and it's God's word who, it's God's word that grows people in the faith and helps people to grow deeper roots in the faith. It's not my word, it's not the words of man, but the word of God. And so the deeper we dive into the word of God, the deeper we will be as Christians. If you don't ever dive deep, then you never become deep in the faith, you see. Now, you know, I say that because I occasionally have to remind us all of the fact that we live in a very shallow and superficial cultural environment, especially here in the United States of America in this era of human history. People are very shallow. People want quick and get me out. The problem with that is, is that that is not the way Christian discipleship works. You can't be a disciple like a microwave. It doesn't happen quickly. It doesn't come you know, like a 30-minute sitcom or 30-minute show or hour-long television show, you know, where everything is resolved within that 30 minutes or that hour in that story. That, that's not the cycle. That's not the way it works. <coughs> Which would explain the reason why you are still, along with me, we all are still on a journey and still we have our ups and downs and we're still struggling along the way. Why? Because discipleship is a lifetime, lifelong commitment through Jesus Christ. It doesn't happen overnight. You don't grow overnight. And when stuff doesn't happen when you want it to, guess what? Welcome to the world of Christian discipleship. Nothing happens on our timetable. It happens on God's timetable. And so today, we ought to be encouraged. This journey through the Gospel of Mark has brought us to chapter 9, now beginning at verse 14. And we have been on this journey for a while now. We will be on this journey for a while in order to get to the end of the journey, at least this episode of this journey through the Gospel of Mark. By the time we get to the end of it, I want you to look back and consider what we learned about Jesus once we got to the end of this compared to what you knew about him when we started. But today, Mark 9, beginning at verse 14. Here we are, on this journey with the Lord Jesus, and guess what? It's back to reality on the ground. <laughs> That's what it is, it's back to reality 
on the ground. When Jesus and Peter and the brothers Zebedee descend the mountain and return to the other disciples, they are greeted by a chaotic scene. From calm on the mountaintop to chaos in the valley. One can only imagine what must have been going through the minds of Peter, James, and John as they approached the scene with Jesus. The, the, the situation uh, that they approached uh, was fraught with multiple challenges and problems. This, this scene that they, have, that they have come upon now down at the foot of the mountain. I can think of at least 10 issues Jesus is facing in this chaotic situation in the valley. 10 issues, 10 problems, 10 challenges, at least 10. Let me give it, let me give it to you. Let me give it to you. There is conflict. There is confusion. There is spiritual weakness and failure. There is disappointment. There is theological disagreement. Spiritual warfare. Demonic activity, mental illness, family crisis, and medical emergency. And that's not everything that Jesus, Peter, James, and John returned to at the foot of the mountain. How did the other nine disciples get into this mess while Jesus and the three disciples were away? <laughs> what precipitated this chaotic scenario? Well, let's see what the story says. Look with me, if you will, in your Bibles. Mark chapter 9, beginning at verse 14. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. By the way, the teachers of the law are also known as the scribes. As soon as the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing about with him, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son, who is possessed by a spirit that has, been robbed, that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground, rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or the water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, 
Jesus said. Everything is possible for one who believed. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. Now, there's some ancient manuscripts and versions of the Bible which also add the word fasting. This kind can come out only by prayer and fasting. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading and receiving of his word. Amen. This episode recalls the Old Testament event when Moses came down from his summit with God on Mount Sinai and found the people immersed in the chaos of idolatry and immorality in Exodus chapter 32. While Moses was in the presence of the Lord, the people were backsliding into sin, and Aaron, the high priest, was too weak to correct them. Hmm. Here in Mark chapter 9, we see the spiritual destruction of a young person happening in the face of spiritual weakness on the part of the disciples. The nine disciples whom Jesus, Peter, James, and John had left behind. Verse 14 says, when they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd gathered around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. Now apparently, the situation had been going on long enough for a crowd to have gathered around the nine disciples who were trying to rescue a boy from his demons. Now that's what, listen, I mean, think about this for a moment and don't forget, the disciples, the nine disciples are trying to help this youngster, this young boy, this young man be delivered from his demons. But the disciples are distracted by certain detractors known as the scribes or the teachers of the law who were attempting to derail the disciples' mission of mercy to this demonically troubled boy. We are not told what the scribes were arguing with the nine disciples about, but we can be sure it had nothing to do with true faith on the part of the scribes. We can be sure of that. We can be sure it had nothing to do with true faith on the part of the scribes. They simply wanted to oppose Jesus and his disciples in everything. The scribes did not care 
about the spiritual, mental, emotional, or physical welfare of this boy. They were not interested in fighting to rescue this boy from the demons. They were more interested in fighting against Jesus and his followers, even if it meant not rescuing this boy from demons. They're the opponents of Jesus, the opponents of the Lord. Yet they, speaking of the scribes, as I've shared with us in the past, they knew the Bible more than anyone else did. For the scribes or the teachers of the law were the scholars of the scriptures. They, they knew the scriptures from memory. They had read and studied for so many years and with such depth that they knew the Bible better than anybody in the population, anybody else in the population would have known it. The scribes would have known it. The priests would have known it. They were teachers of of the law. These are the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They, they care more about trying to defeat Jesus than defeating demons. See, knowledge alone, in and of itself, does not save. There are lots of people with great knowledge. In fact, today, there are lots of people with great knowledge about the Bible but who do not believe Jesus and who are not saved, mm -hmm. who have never repented and believed the gospel, but who would know the Bible better than most of you in this room. You know. I mean, I've worked with them. I've collaborated with them. I've studied with them. I understand how that world works. I've worked in that world and lived in their people who will blow your mind with what they know about the Bible and what they know about the history surrounding the Bible. All of this truth, and it would, again, it would blow your mind to understand that they have no knowledge of Jesus, no care, concern whatsoever about the gospel. In fact, they completely reject the gospel and completely reject Jesus as any sort of savior. They can tell you every part imaginable about the Bible. They write books. They write books. <laughs> Even scholarly and academic treatises on the Bible. I have some of them in my library. And it's amazing how many of their insights are actually true and correct. But they themselves don't know the Lord. There are lots of people like this in the world. But when they die, without Jesus, their knowledge will not save them. Their knowledge will not save them. And there's one who has studied on that level. I've had an occasion or two over the decades to share with some people from the level of their knowledge. Your knowledge will not save you. Only Jesus. Only God by his grace for God is the author of knowledge. These people. So it leads to question, how could these people have gotten it so wrong when they knew so much? The same way we can get it wrong 
even though we know so much, it's something about human nature. And Paul said it in scripture this way in 1 Corinthians, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. See, if it's all about knowledge, then it just puffs you up into arrogance and human pride. And that was the problem with these scribes. And Paul would have known. For Paul also had been a scholar, a rabbi among them. And he knew. They care more about defeating Jesus than defeating him. This kind of spiritual and rotten attitude can infect people in the church today if we are not diligent to be aware of it. We can become obsessed in our knowledge or so-called knowledge. We can become obsessed with opposing someone else instead of saving the Lord. God takes no pleasure in this kind of attitude. In fact, God rejects this kind of mindset. The scribes are no help to this boy who is in Christ. Even though they know everything, they have nothing to offer. And it's a shame. All they know to do is quarrel, argue, create contention and tension in the room. Let us stay away from this kind of useless behavior, brothers and sisters. Let us beware of these kinds of people because they're toxic. That's what the scribes, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, they're toxic, and they bring their spiritual toxicity onto the scene when they show up. God forbid that we should ever be this way. So we all have to regularly check ourselves, and by God's grace and the Holy Spirit, keep ourselves to account so that we don't become like these people, you know, like these scribes. Verse 15 says, as soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. Jesus was a sight for sore eyes. The people were relieved and overjoyed to see Jesus arriving on the scene. As soon as the people saw Jesus, when Jesus comes onto the scene, there is hope for a hopeless situation. That's why they are so delighted and excited when they see the Lord Jesus arriving on the scene. Things must have appeared to be hopeless because verse 14 uh, tells us that the disciples were locked in a dispute with the teachers of the law over their attempts to heal this boy. All these people proved powerless to deliver this boy from being tormented by demons. But when Jesus arrives, his presence changes everything. His presence changes everything for the better. The people were glad to see Jesus. I don't know about you, but I'm glad to see Jesus when I come to worship. 
I hope you see him when you come to worship with us when we gather together. I hope you see him in all of his glory and see him in your heart as we worship together. You know, James Edwards comments on the crowd's response to Jesus, and I quote him. The astonishment of the crowd appears to owe to Jesus' unexpected appearance and the hopes it raised. The crowd's wholesale shift of attitude from the scribes to Jesus once again accentuates his authority over the scribes who are cross-examining the disciples. And the crowd's dissatisfaction with the disciples is offset by its hopes and satisfaction at seeing Jesus, end quote. Their hopes and satisfaction at seeing Jesus. No doubt the nine disciples were glad to see him as well. For whenever they were separated, you know, from Jesus, the disciples, whenever they get separated from Jesus, they fall into crisis. For example, remember, they're on the boat on the sea. Jesus was on the land praying. And what happens in the middle of the night? They get into a crisis out there on the sea. And Jesus has to save them by coming down from the mountains and walking on the water to get to them. Remember, we've been there through that episode. Whenever they are separated from Jesus, they fall into crisis. Speaking of the disciples. Without Jesus, they are incapable of successfully performing any ministry. And so it is with we who are disciples today. Without Jesus, we cannot succeed in anything we attempt to accomplish. Without Jesus, we're doomed. Without Jesus, we're dead. Without Jesus, we're just simply done. Listen, brothers and sisters, we can't do anything without Jesus. We can't accomplish anything, not only in our personal lives, but we can't accomplish anything as a church congregation without Jesus. So anything we do accomplish, anything that does happen, any growth that does take place, it's actually Jesus doing it. Yes, we make our best efforts to serve the Lord and to honor the Lord and serve our community and to evangelize people and share the good news of the gospel with them. Jesus is the one who makes it all happen. Brings it all to fruition and causes it all to come to reality. In verse 16, Jesus asked them, what are you arguing about with him? The father of the demon-possessed boy answered Jesus according to verse 17. It says, a man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seized him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes at the teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked the disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Whatever the disciples and the scribes have been arguing about immediately becomes irrelevant when the boy's father speaks up on behalf of his beleaguered son. Whatever they were arguing about, it didn't matter anymore. When the boy's dad speaks up, you know, one cannot help but empathize with the deep emotional pain of this father who is 
desperate to have his child delivered from these demons. This is a parent's worst nightmare. The demon. The devil. The devils. Who seek to destroy our children. From the inside out, and from the outside in. This is a parent's worst nightmare. Any parent, every parent, any parent, father or mother who loves the child, who loves the children. So there is no pain deeper than the pain of a parent struggling with their troubled child. When he says to Jesus, I brought you my son, you can feel his desperation. No doubt this father had tried every other means to help his son without success. His description of his son's condition is vivid and alarming. Convulsion. Mouth foaming, teeth grinding, total physical rigidity. These symptoms describe what in modern medicine we might call epileptic seizures. But there is much more behind this particular child's maladies. In the parallel account of this story in Matthew chapter 17, verse 15, the father also says, He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. And in the same way, recorded in Luke chapter 9, verse 39, the father says his son's condition scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. You see, the father acknowledges that his son is not simply ill, but is also being attacked by evil spirits or demons. So the boy's plight is physical, mental, and spiritual. Imagine what it was like to live with this kind of triple threat of seizures that were physical, mental, and spiritual. The father describes his son as robbed of speech and subject to violent attacks at any moment, whenever it seizes him, the father says. This means that they were, they were constantly on edge. They were never at ease. They were in perpetual stress mode. Nothing is more wearisome for a loving parent than their troubled children. This father and son are living through an agonizing reality. Everyone who has tried to help has failed, including the disciples of Jesus. The father has to confess to Jesus that his disciples were not able to expel the demonic spirit from his son. You can feel the father's deep, deep, 
disappointment with the disciples' unsuccessful efforts. He says to Jesus, I, I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. They could not. They couldn't do it. They didn't have what was necessary. They didn't understand that they didn't know what was necessary in this case to liberate my son. So we still live with these problems. It's exhausting. It's exasperating. It never ends. It never leaves. The man's mind never rests because his son, his son's soul and his son's mind and his son's body is never at rest. Mm. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yes. Yes. 